October 31st, 2017, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On that same day, another Reformation was taking place, not nearly as public, not nearly as significant, but nonetheless important to the people involved. On that day, what had been known as the Reformed African American Network became The Witness, a black Christian collective. Now, the reasons for the name change are many. I think of it in terms of push and pull factors. Some of the pull factors, some of the things drawing us to change and reform, were a desire to recover the expansive black church tradition. We wanted to learn more about the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Ida B. Wells, the Martin Luther King Juniors, the Howard Thurmans, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on that we hadn't learned about in our Reformed theological circles. But there were also push factors, things that sort of forced us out of waving the Reformed banner. Now, so I don't speak in abstractions, I want to share just a little bit of what was going on. So this is a few years ago, so maybe we need to be reminded, but it has been a time of incredible racial tension in America. Trayvon Martin in 2012, Mike Brown, Ferguson, and the rise of Black Lives Matter, other police-related killings, Eric Garner, Rakia Boyd, Philando Castile, human beings becoming hashtags all over the place. You had Charleston, where a white supremacist walks into a Bible study at the historic Emmanuel AME Church and murders nine black Christians. You had the Charlottesville, quote, Unite the Right rally, where they were protesting the removal of a Confederate monument, a rally that turned deadly. All of these things were happening, all of these things were going on, and I was among one of the many people who spoke out against racism and injustice and was sort of trying to call the church to action, and what happened next kind of surprised me. It's kind of unexpected, but there were a lot of critics. There were a lot of people who pushed back against what I thought were just some very basic things, right? Treat all people as if they have dignity. And the worst part was, the most critical, the most wicked comments came from Christians. Even more specifically, came from Reformed Christians. Uh, Online, it's never a really healthy place for dialogue and whatnot, but, but, but it is indicative because I think... Hidden behind a screen, people say what they really think, and that's what we saw. So these are just a couple of, like, the things that I got on Twitter. This one says, the men of the PCA, which are mostly southern men, have forgotten their ancestors and embraced foreign gods. My hope slash mission is to wake them. And then it says, stop letting strangers lecture you on your ancestors. The idea being that as we talk about racism in the Reformed tradition, these are outsiders telling the insiders who their ancestors really are, so don't let them do that. This is our heritage. Another one. 
this is in direct response to something that, that I had posted. It says, LOL, but look, he, meaning me, is an up-and-comer. I have a friend of a friend that has infiltrated his cabal, just like MLK, the truth will be made known. Now, this sounds like a lot grander conspiracy than I was ever aware of. He's infiltrating my cabal. I didn't get the invite, but apparently there is one. What's interesting is the name, the Twitter handle this person uses, Woke Dabney. I'll talk a little bit more in a moment about Robert Louis Dabney, but it's a Southern Presbyterian theologian, and he's calling upon that heritage to sort of fight against racial justice today. And then lastly, this one is my favorite because it's the worst, and you'll see why. This one, I'm not even sure what it was in response to, but it's a caricature. Obviously, we see a black person with exaggerated features, the Compton Zoo, Compton being a predominantly black neighborhood in LA, and then it's showing sort of this resemblance to chimpanzees. I had to gray out some of the words because they were not fit for a chapel. Now that's just online, right? These are, these are just trolls, and, and in a sense you can simply dismiss them. But that's only the tip of the iceberg, because what else happened were, were blog posts and, and, and videos and, and hit pieces and, and even in-person conversations, all because we're talking about a racial reformation in the American church and in the Reformed tradition. And so I say all of this, not, not for a pity party, not to get sympathy, but because this is real and this is personal. I think for a lot of people, issues of race in the church are kind of topics that you address when something happens in current events or the news or you come across it in class, but otherwise you don't really think of it or you think of it as a problem in the past. And I want to tell you it's a problem right now. And it's a problem that's affecting people. And whether you're white or black, it's affecting people you care about. And it's affecting the church. And that's why we talk about it. I also want to say that as we, in this first lecture, look at some of the history of racism in the Reformed tradition, I don't do this as a gotcha. I don't do this just to call out and critique. Martin Luther King said, there can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. There can be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love, and the fact is I love the church and I want the church to be as healthy as it can be. But unless we deal with the issues of race which have been embedded since the start of the Christian church in America, we will not have healthy churches. And that's where I'm coming from. I, often, I also think race is a gospel issue. You're going to hear people tell you that race is a political issue or a social issue and therefore we shouldn't talk about it in the church or it's beyond the scope of the gospel. Don't let anyone tell you that race is not a gospel issue. It is. 1 John 4.20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So if we are hating our brothers and sisters because of their race or culture or any other factor, 
that means we're hypocrites. We can't say we love God whom we've not seen and, and, and then not love brothers and sisters who we have seen. So the plan this morning is simple. I want to talk about three things. I want to talk about why racism is a gospel issue. I'm going to briefly skim the surface of the long history of racism in the American Reformed tradition. And then I want to talk about grief, lament. So the reality is we treat racism too lightly in the church. I think racism is serious because from a biblical perspective, racism is murder. The sixth commandment says, thou shalt not kill. And the Westminster Catechism actually has a great explanation that is powerful for refuting racism in the church. So my point is you actually don't have to go far for resources to think about race and racism. You can just look at your own confessions, your own catechisms, and apply them in the 21st century to race relations. That's what we're going to do right now. So Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 67, which is the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill, really more accurately translated, do not murder. In other words, the unlawful take of life, which would also include manslaughter, carelessly taking the life of another. In the New Testament, Jesus takes the commandment even further. While the Old Testament focuses mainly on physical death, although of course spiritual death is a reality, Jesus says, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In other words, if you even have anger in your heart, hatred in your heart toward other people, that is, Jesus says, a form of murder. That's why I say racism is murder. That's not exaggeration. That's amplification from Christ. It goes further. If you dig down into the catechism, it doesn't just say what is the commandment. It says what's required in the commandment. The sixth commandment requireth all lawful endeavors to preserve our own life and the life of others. It's quite general, but the larger catechism holds more detail. The larger catechism says in the answer what's required, it means avoiding all occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of the life of any and protecting and defending the innocent. So apply that to slavery. We're Christians defending the innocent. We're Christians avoiding occasions, temptations, and practices which tend to the unjust taking away of life. And then it goes on. What does the sixth commandment forbid? In other words, to obey the commandment, do not do these things. Forbiddeth the taking away of our own life or the life of our neighbor unjustly or whatsoever tendeth thereunto. So might we add, in addition to slavery, Jim Crow segregation, lynching. Here's one. A lack of access to health care. I could say more, but you get the point. 
even within the catechism. You have the tools and the resources to be able to speak about race and against racism and for justice, and yet we have not used the catechism in this way often enough. American racism, which must include things like white supremacy, race-based segregation, violence, either in words or deeds, toward people of other races, targeting people of a specific race for incarceration, depriving people of a particular race of the resources they need for a well-funded education to health care, and excluding people of particular races from leadership and positions of power. All of those things, I would say, fall under what is required or forbidden in the Sixth Amendment. All the way back in 1649, the Catechism had already laid out the theological reasons that racism is wrong. It's a form of murder. This is why racism is a gospel issue. It's a violation of the Sixth Commandment. What one does with racism, both in your own heart and in the world, is an indication of whether you are following the law of love toward neighbor or the law of hate, of whether you are keeping the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill, or whether you're breaking it. That's why we talk about race in the church. Now, one of the things that becomes readily apparent is the way we talk about theologians from the past. So I went to seminary for a long time. I'm, I'm slow on the uptake. It took me five years to finish my master's there. What was so interesting to me was that I, as a black student, which I was only one of a handful in the seminary, would hear professors and pastors and books referencing these theologians, and they would reference them in these glowing terms, like these are the fathers of the faith, we learn so much from them, only to find out much, much later they were slave owners, segregationists, racists, and I'm like, why wouldn't you mention that? Might that affect a little bit our view of these men and their teachings? So I just want to glance over, and, and, and because of time, I have to be very brief on this, but I encourage you to come to, to the subsequent lectures when we have some Q&A time, because I would love to talk in more detail about it, writing a whole book on it, The Color of Compromise. Uh, so if you want more detail, it's out there. But let me just highlight a few figures that we've all probably heard of. Jonathan Edwards lived in the first half of the 18th century. He has been called, quote, America's greatest theologian. Many of us know him from his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was a pivotal figure in the American Great Awakening. Many other contemporary pastors today have popularized Edwards' words, and, and, and they've admired his embrace of the affections or of, of the emotions in, in conversion and worship. And for a long time, that's all I heard about Edwards. What I didn't hear are some of the details. So he was born in 1703 and ministered in Northampton, Massachusetts. And this is a northern location which reminds us that, that parts of the country outside the south were affected by slavery too. By 1731, Edwards had purchased his first enslaved African. It was only recently that I discovered 
We know the name of this person. Her name was Venus. Doesn't that put a human face on the practice of slavery? You can just imagine Jonathan Edwards. Venus, fetch my tea. Venus, take out the trash. This, America's greatest theologian, that wasn't the only slave, slave that he purchased throughout his lifetime. Edwards owned several other people, including a man named Joseph, a man named Lee, and a young boy Christianly named Titus. Edward's slaveholding speaks for itself, but even there's a recently unpublished manuscript that was discovered, and it provides the only written record of Edward's directly addressing his views on slavery. Historian Kenneth Minkima discovered the notes for a letter that appeared to defend a slave-owning pastor from his congregants who were critical of the practice of slave-owning. And so Edwards defended slavery. He did oppose the slave trade, that's transporting Africans from Africa to places in North America. But he did not oppose the practice of slavery itself. And this is what happens with a lot of Reformed Christians. They will attempt to regulate slavery. So they'll say, you know, slave owners, you shouldn't whip your slaves too harshly. You should preach the gospel to them. You should be kind masters. But they never opposed slavery itself. Why did he support slavery? Well, probably social status was a part of it. Edwards was a well-educated man. His, his, his congregation was well-educated, middle-class or wealthy. It's sort of keeping up with the Joneses type of thing, and it was very common at that point. But I think there's another reason. There's individualism. Even in Edwards' revivals in the Great Awakening, the emphasis was on personal conversion, personal holiness, so you could be an evangelical, reformed Christian concerned about evangelism and right living, but that was only on an individual basis when it came to institutional injustices like slavery. Reformed evangelicals did not have a helpful framework for change. I think we see that today. Moving on. Robert Louis Dabney, remember the, the, the person on Twitter was woke Dabney. So Dabney staunchly defended slavery. He was a Southern Presbyterian minister in the 19th century around the time of the Civil War. At first he opposed secession from the Union, but when his home state of Virginia formally seceded and took up the Confederate cause, he became one of the most outspoken defenders of the Southern way of life, a way of life thoroughly wrapped up in slavery. Dabney joined the Confederate Army. He served as a close associate of Stonewall Jackson. And when illness forced Dabney out of the army, he turned his energy toward justifying the cause of the South from the Bible. So in 1867, he writes this book called A Defense of Virginia and Through Her of the South. What's interesting is that he releases this book after the Civil War, which indicates that attitudes toward black people and slavery didn't change just because of the war. They persisted. And in his book, Dabney explains in precise detail, quoting from both the Old and the New Testaments, why the North got it wrong and why the South's defense of slavery was justified. For example, 
he said that slavery wasn't even wasn't just acceptable but it was positive for Africans quote was it nothing that this black race morally inferior should be brought into close relations with a nobler race meaning white people Dabney thought that black people left on their own would tend only toward, quote, lying, theft, drunkenness, laziness, and waste. In his theology, it was only through contact with the nobler race of white people in a master-slave relationship that Africans could be lifted up. Dabney quoted positively time and time again in books, on social media, blogs, in seminary classrooms, without a word about his defense of slavery. Dabney goes on, he says that the greatest benefit of slavery was that it meant black people heard the gospel. Quote, and above all, was it nothing that black slaves should be brought by the relation of servitude, meaning slavery, under the consciences and Christian zeal of a Christian people? In other words, Dabney thought it providential that Africans would be enslaved so that they could finally hear the gospel. Never mind the fact that Christianity made it to Africa long before it made it to Europe. Never mind that some West African slaves had been introduced to Catholicism. Never mind the fact that there might be other ways to evangelize rather than enslaving people. Bringing it up to the 20th century, Guy T. Gillespie is the President Emeritus of Bellhaven College, now University in Jackson, Mississippi. Scholar, a college administrator. In 1954, the Supreme Court handed down its pivotal decision, Brown v. Board of Education, and it rocked the South. Government overreach, outside agitators, leave us alone. And it rocked Christians, too. So, Gillespie attempted to defend segregation from the Bible. He wrote a pamphlet called A Christian View on Segregation. And he said that Paul describes the unity of all believers in Christ as a spiritual relationship. Paul did not have in mind the unity of Christians, quote, in external relations and the wiping out of all distinctions of race, nationality, social status, sex, or cultural heritage. Now, Gillespie admitted the Bible contains no clear mandate for or against segregation as between the white and Negro races, but he said you could infer. Here's how he inferred. He said, quote, there are many variety of the bird family, but under natural conditions, so far as known, bluebirds never mate with redbirds, doves never mate with blackbirds, nor mockingbirds with jay. So he's using the animal species to argue that black and white human beings same genus, same species, shouldn't mate. He also looked to other passages, like from Leviticus, where it commanded the Israelites not to mix, quote, diverse things like wool and linen. And Gillespie figured that the same principle would apply even with greater force with respect to human relations. So he's extrapolating from the fact that different cloths shouldn't be mixed in the Old Testament to say different skin color shouldn't be mixed today. One final example, the PCA and its founding. That's a photo of the Reverend Jim Baird, pastor emeritus of the historic First Presbyterian Church 
of Jackson, Mississippi. He's one of the last living founders of the PCA. And on June 11, 2015, in a room filled with thousands of pastors from the PCA who had gathered for their annual General Assembly, this aged white Mississippi pastor confessed his sins of apathy and ambivalence during the Civil Rights Movement. I was there in the room that day, and he said, quote, and I confess that in 1973, the only thing I understood was that we were starting a new denomination, which we did, and I confess that I did not raise a finger for civil rights. So I want to connect it to the present day, because we can look at folks like Edwards and Dabney and even Gillespie in the 50s and say, that was long ago. Matter of fact, the PCA, of which this is a denominational college, didn't even exist. So why are you talking to me about it? It has nothing to do with me. Yes, it does. The PCA was founded as the, quote, continuing Presbyterian church. Continuing what? The tradition of Southern Presbyterianism, which all those theologians who were slave owners and racists and segregationists, I just told you about. And here's one of the founders, the people in the room when the PCA was created saying, look, we didn't even have race on our minds, which is interesting, right? Because it doesn't mean you have to be overtly racist. It doesn't mean you have to consciously be thinking about hating other people. You just don't have to think about them at all. I would argue that apathy is injustice. And that's what was going on at the foundation, at the root. So then what is the fruit? The fruit is that let, about 1% of teaching elders in the PCA are black. If you go to the vast majority, not only of PCA churches, but reformed churches in general, they're going to be almost all white. Where there is integration, where there is some diversity, go talk to the people of color. Many of them are burdened by the fact that even though they're present, their presence doesn't seem to matter much, doesn't seem to change things. And so I wrestled with, with, with how to end today because I, I know this is heavy. I know this is sobering. You're not going to walk out of here skipping and jumping. And, and, and I don't want to be the you know, bearer of bad news, but, but two things. Number one, this is the first of a three-part series. So in reality, this is not the end. It's the end of the first third. So come 4 o'clock this afternoon, come tomorrow morning, and we'll round out the narrative. But I also thought it necessary that we end and we just let sin be sin. So... In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he's, he's, he's really correcting them. He's rebuking them on some things. But as a pastor, he says he's, he, he regretted causing them grief, but he rejoiced that they received his words of correction and ex expressed a godly grief that leads to repentance. Quote, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So I don't want us to experience a worldly sorrow that, 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 that tends toward bitterness and, and, and a sense of hopelessness, but I do want us to feel a sense of godly grief. Brothers and sisters, these things happened, 
as I showed you at the beginning, they are happening. And if we let sin be sin, then we must grieve. We must weep with those who weep. We must lament. And I think there's a place for that in the Christian life. This stuff is ugly. It is wicked. It is sinful. And it's happened in the church. But if you want to jump to solutions without grieving, then you're not going to be very helpful. So let that rest on your consciences. Rest on your heart. Bring it to the Lord. And then come back this afternoon. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we confess to you as your church that we have often been complicit, if not outright, in support of racism in the church. And Father, we ask your forgiveness for all those missed opportunities, for all those words carelessly spoken, for all the actions that we have taken and our brothers and sisters who came before us have taken. But Lord, we do pray for a revival. We pray for a modern-day reformation when it comes to race in the church, and we pray that it would begin, Lord, even with us. And God, although we walk out of here grieving and lamenting, we do pray that you would, you would transform this by, by your redemptive grace into a moment of godly grief that leads to repentance. I pray, O oh Lord, that you would speed us on our way at the beginning of a week. Thank you for these brothers and sisters who have attended here. All praises and all glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.